It is Marathon Sunday in San Francisco, and uh, I'm a long-distance runner myself. I've run the marathon a couple of times, and you know, there's a reason why people come from all around the world to run the San Francisco Marathon. It's not just the hills. The hills are brutal, by the way. But uh, you know, if you're going to run a marathon, the best place to run it is someplace where it's cool, a little damp, no humidity, and where else in the middle of summer can you do that than in San Francisco? <laughs> in the, last sun, the last weekend of July, and my, how the summer seems to be flying by. I, 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 I don't know about you, but it feels to me that July always goes a lot faster than February. I don't know why, but it seems like the summer just goes by so much faster. Um, but it's great to be here this morning. Um, I'm going to talk about a topic that uh, we've titled The Faithful Fork in Life. And I want to explain that uh, title for a second because that could actually be a good episode for that show, The Biggest Loser. You know, The, the Faithful Fork. Um, I don't, my wife, I'm not ashamed to say it. Well, I am ashamed to say it. My wife and I are hooked on The Biggest Loser. I don't know why, but we, we love, that, that, love that show. But that's not the fork that we're talking about. It's not that kind of fork. What I'm going to do is I'm going to spend time talking about a fork in life that we reach, a fork that each one of us has God put in front of us, where we make a decision to go left or to go right or stand still. And what God wants us to do is to choose the faithful fork, the path of faith, and step forward onto that path and stay on it. That's the fork that we're going to speak about this morning. And for me, the first time that I saw that fork was August 8, 1970. And that was a day where I took a step on a path towards Jesus that put me on a path that brings me all the way back to July 26, 2009, right here. And I want to spend some time talking about that. First of all, though, I want to say it's actually good to be home. Um, for me, this is our home. Patty and I live here in the Bay Area, and we've been attending Cornerstone since 2001. And this is our home church. But we've been gone in a way for the last couple of months. We spent the month of June in her hometown in the Bronx of New York, a borough, uh, being with her father who passed away on June 20th. We spent the month of June basically by a bedside watching her father die and trying to be there to comfort him and the family. And then after that, we got some time away, and we've been on the East Coast just spending time together as a family. So, you know, it's, it's actually very good to be home. And when I came and landed in San Francisco on Friday night, you know, I could feel what it feels like to be home. And when I came back to church yesterday afternoon, I certainly know what it felt like to be home because you can feel what it feels like to be back in your home church. And when I'm on the road or we're away from home, I, I like to always go visit other churches on the weekend. One of the things that I think someone should do is create a good Yelp for churches, <laughs> right? Because anybody who's ever gone and visited other churches sort of knows, you know, you know what it's like. I mean, you go, sometimes you have a great experience, and sometimes it's not exactly what, it's not exactly what you were expecting. And it's kind of a bummer because, you know, you only have that one weekend to do it, and then you have to wait for a whole other weekend to try someplace else. And so, you know, I know what it feels like in some ways that when we all come to church, we come in a different place in a different state of mind and maybe even a different attitude. And I would say that I know for sure there are people here today this afternoon who are committed followers of Jesus. This is your home church. You come here every week to spend time learning, deepening your relationship, learning something else about what God has to say to you. You fellowship with others to keep yourself strong. 
And there are others that are here that are committed followers, and you're church, you are church shopping. This might be your first time at Cornerstone, and I, and I personally hope you come back again. Um, but you're out church shopping. And there are some that are here today that you have no idea why you're here. There was just a voice inside of you that said, I should go to church today. And you may not know even to this moment why you're here. I hope by the end of this hour you will know. And there are some of you who are here that there's something going on in life that's a challenge, a problem, an issue that you just haven't been able to take care of on your own or with your friends or with others that you're looking to God and you're trying to find that answer. And you're here today. And I know that there are others who are invited and are happy to be here. And then I know that there are also some that you're sitting here right now going, when does this finish? And you're, you know, come on, let's get through this. You know, we all come to church in a different place. But what I will tell you is God comes here to meet us. He's always here for each one of us. And I'd like to pray that for just a moment. Lord, we just thank you for the opportunity to actually all come together. And no matter where we are, Lord, in our mind, in our place, in our space right now, we thank you for being here to greet us. We thank you for being here for us. And we ask you, Lord, to reveal to us the fork that you would have put in front of us in this time that we have. In your name we pray. Amen. So I've enjoyed this decision series, the moment of decisions that we've been going through. I've been watching it online. And if you're ever out of town and you want to catch up with what's going on, you go on Cornerstone TV and you can see the message series, the folks who are manning the camera and off in the booth who put all this together. They do a fantastic job of keeping that for us. And I've been learning from this series all summer long. And a few things that I've taken away already is, um, one, decisions, whether they're big or small or where they are in our life, the decisions that don't have actions are really not decisions at all. We say we make a decision, but there's no action to follow up to that decision. We didn't really make the decision. Otherwise, there would be an action. And for decisions that are taken and then actions that follow, each one of them have consequences. Each decision that we make, we truly make, is consequential. And sometimes those decisions are, we can see the consequence immediately. Other times, it might take time. And there are some decisions that we make that we have no idea what the consequence is going to be. In fact, it might be happening well beyond you, maybe even years and years beyond that you would ever see. Sort of like that uh, Coca-Cola commercial that came out earlier in the year, the one about kindness, where the one guy does something for somebody else, and then they do something some good for someone else, and it just keeps passing along until you know someone way down the chain has no idea it was because someone did an act of kindness at the beginning. Also like that thing, which I don't know is true or not, but you know, we learned it when we were kids about the butterfly, you know, the butterfly in Africa that does this, and then the storm that happens someplace else. It, that it, is there a, there's, it's not true, right, that that really happens? But the principle is right, you know? The principle is right, that the decisions that we make, the consequences that we have, you know, they get passed along, and each decision is consequential. And what I want to talk about today is a very consequential decision, a decision that God puts in front of us, that puts a fork that says, you can either follow me or you cannot follow me. It's a binary decision. And that's the fork that we're going to spend time talking about. If you take your handout out, pull out your handout, um, the Bible is full of great um, illustrations and great, great lessons to, for us to be taught. And, and actually, in the book of James, we're actually taught about this decision-making 
and how we're supposed to make decisions and how decisive we're supposed to be in our lives. Um, James is one of the books at the end of the New Testament, and it's actually a letter. And it was a letter written by this author, James, who was not the, you might know, you think about James, the James we hear a lot about is James, who was the, son, the brother of John, one of the disciples of Jesus, and they were both the sons of Zebedee. It's a different James. This is a James that wrote this post the death of Christ, wrote, wrote this letter, and he became a very influential leader in the church and in Christianity, and, and someone who um, his writings were followed over time, even until today. And I, I find the book amazing. I mean, it's only five chapters. Um, it's very short, but it's so full of instructions that are so practical day in and day out for the lives that we live that I, I would encourage you to spend some time in the book of James. And these letters, and I think the reason why is because these letters that were written are different than the letters we write today. I mean, okay, let's be honest. How many of us even write letters anymore? Handwritten letters? Last time we wrote a handwritten letter, I mean, I can't even write, I can't write one all the way through. My hand gets tired. My, my handwriting is so bad that people can't read it on the other end. Now, my keystrokes are awesome. And my thumbs, you should see my thumbs. But in this time and age, this was a time when you would write a letter and you would deliberate over it and you would spend hours, if not weeks or maybe months or years, to get that letter exactly right because you were going to send it off and you may never write another letter. In fact, sometimes you didn't even know if it was going to be delivered or not. There was no postal service back then. So this was not a place where people took shortcuts. I mean, they were not abbreviating down to 140 characters. Right? And there was no Twittering or texting back then. It was very specific and chosen words that would go out. And I, I imagine that you know, even back then, there were probably entrepreneurs. And I can imagine the courier who would come forward and say, I'll deliver your letter, guaranteed to be delivered within my lifetime. <laughs> because it was going to go thousands and thousands of miles. And so James wrote this letter, and he sent it out not knowing, and in fact it says it's dispersed out, not maybe knowing that anyone was ever going to pick it up and certainly maybe never getting the feedback. And I think that's why it's so impactful, the words that he chooses. chooses. So let's read it together. You see it in your handout. It starts with, but when you ask him, him being God, be sure that you really expect him to answer. For a doubtful mind is as unsettled as a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. Think about that for a second. A doubtful mind is as unsettled as a wave that is driven and tossed by the wind. You know what that feels like, right? When you have a doubtful mind, it does feel like we're tossing and we're turning. He goes on to say that people like that should not expect to receive anything from the Lord. They can't make up their minds. They waver back and forth, back and forth in everything they do. Why this relates so well to me is because that's me. I read that and I go, wow, that's how I make decisions. Or when I don't make decisions, I waver back and forth. And I say to myself, why is it that I do that? It's because it's hard. It's not easy to make decisions and stick with them. If it was, we'd all do it. You know, nothing, you know the saying, right? Nothing in life that's good for you comes easy. Right? It is hard to stick with a decision. 
And so what James is trying to tell us is, is that the decision-making that we're supposed to make, the way we're supposed to be is we're supposed to not waver back and forth like the wave in the sea. We're supposed to be decisive. So what I'd like to do is just spend a couple of minutes telling you a little bit about my story and a little bit about how hard it's been for me to be as decisive as I want to be in my life. So I need some help, actually, to do this. So I'm going to invite in what I believe to be one of the most influential men in San Francisco to help me illustrate my story. Now, at this point, your mind's supposed to be going, hmm, who would be one of the most influential men in San Francisco? So you've got in your mind going, you know, you might be thinking, well, maybe it's the mayor, or maybe it's the former mayor, the guy with the hat, you know? So you're sitting there thinking it's politics. Well, it's not anybody in politics. And, and it's probably not someone that's immediately popping up into your mind. But who it is is someone who's influenced, absolutely, I'm sure, everybody here's decision at one point or another around how you spend your time and how you spend your discretionary income. And I want him to come here right now and help represent and maybe even critique how God, how I have allowed God to be reflected in my work life. And I've chosen work because we all share that. So that influential man is no other than the little man. Right? We all know the little man. The little man from the San Francisco Chronicle. He tells us what movies to go to, what movies not to go to. What video games to buy, what video games not to buy. What CDs to buy, what CDs not to buy. And we look at it, and because... You know, we're all kind of lazy when it comes to it. We just look at the little man. And we say, what's the little man tell us? And then we sometimes, maybe we'll go ahead and read the rest of the review. Most of the times we don't. We just look at the little man. And we say, you know, what are we, we going to do with our discretionary time and our discretionary income? So I'm going to use the little man to look into my career to help show and reflect how I have allowed God to be integrated into my life. Now, preface this to say, I'm a believer in Christ. I'm a follower of Jesus. Let's take a look. So this is my work career. I came out of college and went to a company called Pratt & Whitney in uh, Connecticut. After that, I moved to PepsiCo. My wife and I came out to California to join when I joined Electronic Arts EA, the video game company. Then I got a chance to go be a CEO of a digital music commerce company called Snowcap. We sold that company a little over a year ago. And now what I'm doing is consulting, speaking, writing, quite honestly, trying to figure out what tomorrow's going to look like. Now, let's let the little man do a little critiquing. OK, so how did God, was God reflected in my life when I was working in prep? Not too good. I mean, we all know what that means, right? We don't go to that movie. We don't even wait for that movie to come out on DVD. We don't go to that movie. All right, so then my next job. There it is. The chair is still empty. Now, I started to get a little more courageous and a little more um, feeling like, you know, maybe God could come to work with me and I could let people see that I had a faith when I came out here. And part of that was my Cornerstone experience when, I joined, when Patty and I joined Cornerstone. But even so, that was sort of not so good. I mean, if, you've had, if your track record was a producer and those were the three, or director, and those were your three movies, you don't get to make the fourth movie. 
Now, when I got a chance to go to Snowcapped, I was becoming a CEO. I felt some more responsibility about how I needed to be as a leader. So I started to take a step forward and change some of the behaviors that I had in my work life prior. And I made some choices about some words that would come out of my mouth and the way I would treat people and the things that I would say and the, th the way that I would act. And I would say that I let God be reflected through me a little better. But I would still say that was okay. And okay is not good. Okay is just okay. And since then, what I've been trying to do is I've been trying to let God be reflected and I'm trying to let God show up more in what I do with ultimately the aspiration of the little man out of the chair. And that's what I would love more than anything. But it's hard and it's not easy. And I waver and I go back and forth. And why do I do that? Because it's right there in verse 7 and 8. I can't make up my mind. They can't make up their minds. They waver back and forth in everything they do. And as it says, people like that should not expect to receive anything from the Lord. And here I am trying to respect all the bless expect all the blessings and the gifts of God, but yet I can't be decisive enough to be consistent day in and day out. Now, the sad part of this story is look at the years. Look how many years the seat was empty. That wasn't God not showing up. He wanted to. That was God not letting me not letting God be there with me. And I think back about this and I think, you know, those are my most, maybe my most influential years, maybe my best years that I just squandered, that I wasted and missed so many opportunities. To be able to be an example of a follower of Christ, that's what I'm talking about. To be an example, to have been a, uh, in a place where others could see that I had taken that path and I was still on that path. Now, there's two ways to, to deal with this, right? One is to just look at that and say, you know, all that lost time, man, I denied Jesus for so long and I didn't let him come into my workplace with me. I didn't let him, my, let him be represented in my life. I can never get over that and I'm just going to stop right where I am and I'm just going to, that was the best I could do, God. I, that's it. I can't do anymore. That's one way to look at it. That's not what God wants us to do. God wants us to more be like, anybody been watching the Tour de France? Right, the Tour de France? So if you, if you have been watching it, you're tired because you've been up every morning at 4 o'clock in the morning watching it. Or, like me, you've been DVRing it, right? You've got your TiVo set. But, you know, the, tour, the guys that start the Tour de France, they, 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 they ride 21 stages. So they, today was the last day. And they rode into the Chanceliers in um, Paris. And, but 21 stages ago, like three weeks ago, they started the race. And they race a little over 2,000 miles. And they race a little over 80 hours, eight zero hours that they've been out racing on the road. And from day one, there's a group of people of the 160 that fall back so many hours and minutes from day one that they can never catch up. And they've lost so much time and so much ground that there's no chance they'll, they'll ever stand on the podium. But yet, they get up every morning and they do as grueling of an athletic endurance event that you can imagine. They do it every single day, no matter what. 
That's how God wants us to be. I was, uh, this morning, someone came up to me after the 9 o'clock service and said, you know what the great thing about that analogy with the Tour de France is? Is that, you know, in God's kingdom, no matter what happens and how far you are behind, if you stay on the path and you keep at it, you end up on the podium. And how great that lesson is. And there's no other better lesson than that if you look at the lesson of Peter. Peter, the disciple, the apostle. Peter, who we know denied Christ how many times? Three times, right? So Peter had this chance. Here he was. He had his Savior, his Lord, the Messiah with him. Here he is, and he's one of the, his closest disciples, and we know that. And to, and to put it in even human terms, he was his closest friend. And Jesus looked at him as one of his closest friends. And Jesus says to him the night before his crucifixion, he says, hey, Peter, you know, I know, I know you say you're going to follow me, but before the cock, the cock crows, before the rooster crows tomorrow morning, you will have denied me three times. And what does Peter say? Ah, you got that wrong. Not me. Uh-uh. I'm close. You know, you and me, we're together. That's not going to happen. And then what happens is he sees his best friend, his Savior, the Lord, get arrested, get persecuted, on his way to being crucified, and just outside the gates, people are coming up to Peter and saying, aren't you the guy that knows, nope, not me? Weren't you with, nope, no, nope, no, nope, that wasn't me? Aren't you a part of, uh-uh, not me, and the rooster crows? And we know from the Bible, after that third denial and the rooster crows, that Peter runs away crying in anguish. Deny Christ. Just like those years that I feel like I denied Christ by not letting him show up in my life, even though he wanted to. Now, what did Peter do? Peter didn't go get in a, a bucket or, you know, hide and, and, not, and live his life in a cave. No, he came back to be one of the great leaders of his time and one of the leaders that we follow today, even today as a great example. He did like the guys do in the Tour de France. He got right back up and he attacked again. And so there is an example of a man who might have wavered in his decisions, but he came back onto the path so that he would not waver again. You know, I went through this phase where I was trying to figure all this out, and I went through the what would Jesus do phase. And I'm not saying there's anything wrong with this, but I, you know, I wore the what would Jesus do uh, little necklace underneath and the thing here. And, you know, it got to a point where I just couldn't live up to that standard, no matter how hard I tried, because I would find myself in places that I would look around and go, uh-uh, Jesus would never be here. Or I would look at it and I would say, you know what, Jesus would never think that. Or Jesus would never have those words just come out of his mouth. Or Jesus would have never hurt that person. Or Jesus would have never broken that promise. And I'd find myself in a position where I didn't know what to do because I said, what would Jesus do? Well, Jesus would have never gotten himself in this situation in the first place. So instead, what I, what I learned over the last few years is, is it is what would Jesus do, but it's even more than that. It, was, it is what would Jesus have me do? And it was in those moments that I began to find myself back on the path, the path that brings us back very circuitously to August 8, 1970. So August 8, 1970. That would be, if you're doing the math, that would be 39 years ago. 
That would be one year after Neil Armstrong walked on the moon, just in a month after. And on August 8, 1970, I was eight years old. And I was sitting in a chair just like this, a metal folding chair, in Louisville, Kentucky. Now, to give you a sense, in August in Louisville, Kentucky, it's a little different than July and August in San Francisco. In fact, it's just the opposite. They're not running any marathons in Louisville in August. It was one of those days. It's in the Ohio Valley. It's one of those places where, you know, the heat's bad, but the humidity's awful. And I can remember on this Saturday afternoon in a special service in a church in Louisville, me and my father, my mother, my brother sitting in this church service, and I was sitting in a chair just like this. And the reason I know it was a chair just like this is because, do you know when you're, um, you're really hot and you're sitting in a, a chair like this, that you'll reach down, and even right now I can feel it's cooler than me? I remember that day reaching and grabbing this chair and that, hot, that chair being hotter than me. And I'm sitting there in this church, which was really a makeshift house. What they had done is they had taken the first floor of the house and they'd taken out all the living room furniture and all the dining room furniture and it sort of made an L. And in the corner, that's where the pastor preached. And it must have been maybe 50 or so, maybe even up to 75 chairs, if that much. But it was crowded and it was hot and it was sweltering and the fans were blowing and this preacher was preaching and he said something that put the fork right in front of me. He said, today is the day that you can meet Jesus. Today can be your day. Now, I was eight years old. And there's some people who would say, at eight years old, you have no idea what's going on, that you, don't, you can't make that decision, that you have no context for any of that stuff. But I will tell you for sure, at eight years old, I knew exactly what was going on. And kids at that age, they do know what's going on. They listen to every single word an adult says. And if you don't believe me, come up to our Sunday school class on a Sunday morning because we know all the things you said at home. <laughs> we hear it. They listen so intently. You know, there's a reason why in the Bible, you know, Jesus says, you know, beware to those who mislead my little ones. It'd be better to have a millstone put around your neck and thrown into the ocean than it would to mislead one of my little ones. Because at that age, they're pure. We were all pure. And sometimes we need the purity of childlike purity to hear what God has to say to us. And we have to bring ourselves back to those moments. Because at eight years old, you know, you look up at the clouds and you go, wow, look at that rhinoceros wearing those tennis shoes. You know, at our age, we can't see that anymore. Something happens along the way where you know, I can't do that because I'm not cool enough. Or I can't do that because somebody else is going to make fun of me. Or I can't do that because, you know, I won't be in the in crowd. But at that age, God speaks. And that day, he spoke to me. Now, in those kind of churches in the Midwest, in the Bible Belt, because that's the Bible Belt, they do what they call an altar call. An altar call, if you've ever been to church that does it, is basically at the end of the service, they say, anybody who would like to accept Jesus, come forward, accept him as your personal savior, stand up, get out of your seat, come on right down here in the front, stand, sit at the altar, we'll pray, pray for with you um, at the end of the service. And there was an altar call. I didn't get up out of my seat. I don't know why I didn't get up out of my seat, but maybe I was you know, beginning to think, oh, maybe that's not cool to do. But at the end of the service, I said to my father, 
I want to pray that prayer he was talking about. I want to meet Jesus. And after that service, my father took me over um, with the pastor, and we prayed that prayer. And that was my step. That was my fork. That was the step forward that I took that brings me to the path back today, a very circuitous route. A lot of years of not living the life that Jesus wanted me to live, but a life that he said, if you take that path, and you, you can get back on it. Now, he comes to us in lots of different ways. If you look in your handout, you know, I mean, that, that was my experience. There are other people who have different experiences. Um, if you look in Luke, you know, when Jesus went and he was recruiting his disciples, he went to Levi, who became Matthew, the tax collector. And it, I mean, it was very simple. It just says later, as Jesus left the town, he saw a tax collector named Levi sitting in his tax collection booth. And he just said, come, be my disciple. That's what Jesus said to him. And what did Levi do? Levi showed decisiveness. He didn't waver. He got up, he left everything, and he followed him. How awesome would that be, to be so in love and just to stand forward and say, Jesus, I'm going to follow you. I'm going to leave it all behind me. That's what he's asking us to do, but it's hard. And I know we all waver. My father-in-law that I talked to you about, um, who died on June 20th, he was 83 years old at the time. The last couple of weeks of his life, he really didn't know what was going on. He was, uh, all the treatment had been stopped and he had no life support, and he was just basically dying. And in those last two weeks, he celebrated two very important anniversaries. One was he celebrated his 55th wedding anniversary. God bless anybody who's married 55 years. Secondly, he celebrated, and what probably is more, was more important, if there is something more important than your wedding anniversary, he celebrated his 36th year as an ordained deacon in his church. Now, my wife and I, Patty, have been married coming up on 15 years, and we dated for four years prior, so I knew my father-in-law for nearly 20 years. And we never talked about that moment when the fork was put in front of him where he made that decision to get on a path, but we actually never had to talk about it because... For 20 years, I saw a man who never missed a morning time to have his devotion and prayer time in his Bible and his prayer with his God. I saw a man who, in town or out of town, never missed church on the weekend. I saw a man who, when he was in town, never missed a Sunday that he didn't, after church, go and minister to the sick who were in the hospitals in his neighborhood, ironically, the same hospital that he died in. I saw a man who never wavered. I saw a man who was decisive. I saw a man who was on the path and stayed on the path. And that's what God's inviting us to do, is to get on the path at the fork and stay with him. So three closing thoughts for you. First of all, the path that we're talking about is the, and the fork is the fork towards Jesus. You know, he says to us in John, there's only one way to get to the Father. That's through me. I am the way. I am the truth. I am the life. No one comes to the Father. No one enters except through me. That move that we make when we get to the fork and we get on the path is towards Jesus. And the promises that come from that is a life eternal. And it's an important decision for each one of us to make. Secondly, if you're on the path but, and you've made that decision, but you get off the path like I did, what I will tell you is the path 
It's just right over there. It's not that far away from you. And in fact, what God does is he, he moves it closer to you so that you just have to take one little step over to get back on. Anybody who's ever backpacked or trail run, done trail running, knows what it feels like to get off the path. You know, you're out there and all of a sudden it just doesn't look right. Right? And all of a sudden you have that moment of anxiety. That's the moment, folks, when we're supposed to step back, look over, and get back on that path. It's not lost on me the symbolism of what, when we were growing up and what we were learning about the Native Americans or the explorers that went across the United States, you know, how they would find the path. And we've all seen it in the movies and we've read it in the books that they would kneel down and they would get down and they would look and they would feel and they would touch and sometimes they'd listen and they'd smell. But the symbolism, they'd get right down on their knees. And sometimes that's what we got to do to find the path. But the nice thing is, is it's just right there. God doesn't want us to be lost. He tells us in Matthew, he gives the parable of the shepherd who has 100 sheep. And he says that if one of those sheep gets away, the 99 are okay, but what am I, what's the shepherd do? He goes and finds the other sheep to bring him back into the fold. That's what God wants to do with us. wants us to just let the path move to us so we can get back on it. And then lastly, when we're on that path, every step forward is a step of momentum. And sometimes it is. I was talking to someone after last service who said, you know, I just can't make the giant steps. No, 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 no. He just wants us to make the small steps. Just keep moving towards Jesus. There's a poem that I put in your handout. And the reason this poem struck me so much is because you know, in the lives that we live, there's lots of things going on. I mean, we've got careers to manage. We've got families to lead. We've got friends. We've got financial responsibilities. We've got goals. We've got dreams. We've got aspirations. But there needs to be a way that we can continue to keep our faith in Jesus in the forefront. And this poem struck me so much when I read it last month. It says, my goal, my goal, all of us, right, began as a dream. That is when vision came on the scene and designed a plan for me to succeed. Attitude was positive. That motivation was in need. Commitment and sacrifice began to shout. And here's the wavering part. Adversity showed up, followed by doubt. And then faith. Faith in Jesus came along and kicked them both out. Yes, it's faith, my friend. That's what it's all about, faith in Jesus. Life is valuable, but only for a season. I stay persistent just for that reason. Yesterday, those days of okay, those days are gone, but tomorrow will soon begin. You see, I must repeat my performance again and again and again. Step by step by step is what God is asking us to do. We're also going to have the band come forward and sing a song, a song that we chose just for today called Never Going Back to Okay. I talked about those okay years in my life. You know what? I don't want to go back. I pray that God gives me many more years to try to get the little man out of the chair. But this struck me so much, this song, about just look at the lyrics. Things like, but as long as I'm moving, it's all right. 
As long as I'm moving towards Jesus, it's all right. Okay, that was yesterday. We're never going back to easy. Remember what I said? It's hard. But we don't have to go back to easy. And it closes with, we're here to stay. This is our time. My only life, our chance to live. Our only life, our only chance to make the decision, the binary decision, to step on the path to follow or not. And God is putting that fork in front of us right now. And he keeps that fork in front of us. Praise God. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you. We thank you for keeping the fork in front of us and giving us the choice and allowing us to be able to take that step forward. And Lord, I pray this morning and this afternoon that those who have already stepped forward on the path, that have lost that path, just need to drop to the knee and look over and bring the path right back to them. And they take that step back on and continue to move forward. And Lord, I pray for those where maybe this afternoon, in this hour we've had together, is the first time that that fork has ever been revealed. And I pray, Lord, that you would just touch them right now. Let them know that, you know, you're a God who changes lives. You're a God that brings love and grace and wants to bring abundance into our life. And that, Lord, today can be that decision point that they never, ever, none of us ever have to go back to being okay. Lord, we thank you for this time. We ask you to bless our offering, and we ask you to bless us and keep us safely as we go into this week. In your name we pray. Amen. Amen.